Good morning. Ready to go? Okay, good morning. Hi, everybody. Welcome. My name is Mary Agnes Carey. I'm senior correspondent and partnerships editor for Kaiser Health News. We're a national not-for-profit healthcare news service. We're an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation, and our stories have appeared in publications everywhere, including the Texas Tribune. So I welcome you all here to talk about this session. We're talking about the future of Medicaid, and uh, we welcome your questions, and we're going to have a great discussion. Just a couple of housekeeping things quickly. Doctors Hospital at Renaissance is our sponsor. We thank them. I'd like you to silence your phones, but if you do want to tweet, please do. The hashtag is TribFest17. We all love Twitter. And uh, like I said, we'll have a little bit of a discussion up here, and then I will turn it over to the audience. So um, I just want to go over quickly what Medicaid is for some of the audience that might not know Medicaid. It's the shared state-federal health insurance program for the poor and disabled. It covers 74 million people. Let me break that number down for you a bit. Medicaid pays for half of all births in this country, two-thirds of all nursing home care. It provides health care for four out of 10 American children, and 10 American children and adults with physical or mental disabilities also get care from Medicaid. Now, as we all know, we've been watching about this and talking about it. The Senate may or may not vote on next week on legislation that would not only repeal the Affordable Care Act, but would also radically restructure and cut Medicaid funding. Now, it's unclear if Republicans have the votes now that Senator John McCain has come out in opposition, but I think you can be sure that Republican leadership, Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, is working the rest of that caucus to try to get the 50 votes he needs with Mike Pence casting that tiebreaker to pass that bill. Now, I know this particular bill on the Affordable Care Act is extremely important, especially in a state like Texas, that leads the nation in the rate and the number of the uninsured. But today, we're going to talk about the future of the Medicaid program. This is an entitlement program created in 1965. What are the current strengths and the weaknesses of the program? Is it too big? Is it too expensive? Is it a cost-efficient way to deliver quality care? Should people who don't now have health insurance be allowed to buy into Medicaid so they do have coverage? We have two incredible panelists here today to take us through this discussion. I'm going to introduce them very briefly. To my immediate left is Andy Slavitt. He's the senior advisor to the Bipartisan Policy Center, where he co-chairs an initiative on the future of health care. And from 20, 2015 to 2017, he served as the acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. He's a fierce defender of the Affordable Care Act, and you can read all about that and more on his very active Twitter feed. Ovek Roy, sitting next to Andy, he's president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. That's a nonprofit think tank. He's also the opinion editor at Forbes, Forbes.com, where he oversees the Apothecary. That's a conservative health policy blog. And uh, also, they also talk about entitlement reform on that blog. And Ovek has been a policy advisor to Republican presidential candidates, and you need to follow him on Twitter as well. These are two very, very smart folks. So as I noted at the top, I'm going to start with a few questions, but we will get to your questions, so please start thinking about it. Um, and I know I just said I want to focus on the future of the Medicaid program, but before we talk about that, I just wanted to get from your perspective, your take on when you look at the current bill on the Senate floor and the changes it would make to Medicaid, when you look at the bill that was rejected in the Senate earlier in the summer and the bill that the House approved earlier this year, 
Do you think that it was a mistake or was it right on target for Republicans to go for Medicaid block grants and per capita caps and changes in the funding formula when the goal was really to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act? And also, what does this debate mean for public awareness and opinion of this program? Andy, could you start? Good. Well, thank you, Mary Agnes, for having sure. me here. And good to be with Ovik. Um, you know, look, when, when Democrats think about Medicaid, they tend to see a big, beautiful program that covers lots of people, um, creates a healthy start for kids, uh, helps take care of people in vulnerable times of their lives, middle class families, people dealing with disabilities, and all the wonderful things it does. When Republicans tend to think about Medicaid, what they tend to see is a, something that is overwhelming a lot of state budgets, something that makes it very difficult for states to actually do a lot of the things that they want to do, crowds out a lot of investments. So who's right? Well, both are right. Uh, both are right, and I think it's the challenge we have that Democrats don't always do as good a job listening to the very real concerns that Republicans raise about programs like Medicaid and its sustainability. And Republicans also have to understand that just blanket cutting, prog cutting programs is not a way that's going to lead us to better health or better outcomes, and in fact, could end up leading to us cost more money. And so the effort and the energy around a program that you know, every governor cares about, but have people have different, different prescriptions for, is too important to um, put in the, on the side of a bill that is, uh, that is really, at this point, the result of a lot of campaign promises, but doesn't have, you know, quite frankly, um, the heart commitment and policy development, uh, let alone you know, exposure and process, that you'd need to put a, a bill of that magnitude together. So I think there's great debates to be had about Medicaid. I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of these issues here. And certainly the Medicaid program, we should all, if we love it, we should be committed to improving it. If we're worried about what it does to our budget, we should also be worried about what it does and what it accomplishes so we get value for our money. And you know, right now, I think um, having Medicaid act as I believe it is as a piggy bank to pay for other things is just not right for our country. Well, it's, it's great to be here in my hometown of Austin. I didn't have to drive very far to be here there today, you go. which is Excellent. It's a nice change. And it's always uh, nice to see Andy. Usually we're having these uh, discussions at the Bipartisan Partisan Center, uh, Policy Center, where I'm also a senior advisor in DC. Um, you know, when we launched uh, my new think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, a year ago uh, in Austin, Texas, it's headquartered here, uh, we launched with a 102-page manifesto about free market ideas to achieve universal coverage. So that's one area where we've t perhaps taken a different tone than the traditional conservative or Republican views on healthcare, because healthcare and health insurance in particular is very important for the economic security and financial security of families all around this country that don't want to go bankrupt because of medical bills. Um, and so in that context, if, if, you know, to answer that set of questions you started out with, the question is really, what's the best way to provide or offer that safety net, that economic security, to those who can't afford to buy it on their own? And it's my view that actually the Affordable Care Act exchanges, the use of tax credits for people to buy private insurance, is a better way to achieve that goal than the Medicaid program. And so one of the things that we talked about and proposed in this white paper was, hey, the exchanges if they're, if they're stable and they're reformed so that they can have, there could be more competition and lower premiums, though they're more affordable to a broad range of people, that actually is a better way to expand coverage to the uninsured than the Medicaid program. And that should be the focus in the future. And another advantage of, of the exchanges relative to Medicaid is that they're 100% funded by the federal government, whereas Medicaid has a state 
federal uh, combination. And so the challenge with Medicaid is, for example, in Texas, in the state of Texas, the Medicaid program is 30% of the state budget, and it increases about 1.5% a year. So we're using back-of-the-envelope round numbers. The state budget of Texas is about $100 billion a year, and uh, $30 billion of that is Medicaid now. And that's, again, it's increasing every year. And so the question is, if you want that to grow even more by expanding Medicaid, do you raise taxes to do that? Do you cut spending from the University of Texas, from public schools? What are the priorities? It's not merely that there's just money you know, falling from the sky. You have to make decisions. And Texas can't issue treasury bonds to borrow money from China the way the US government can. So there's more flexibility fiscally in doing this at the federal level and the state level. Uh, and so right now, the way I look at it is, let's, let's invest in that system. Let's make the system for buying private insurance better so that those who are low income can afford it. The Medicaid program has had a lot of challenges because what it pays doctors and hospitals to care for people is very, very different and much lower than what private insurance pays. So a lot of doctors don't take Medicaid. Maybe Medicaid's paying the right price and private insurers are overpaying. But the end result is that a lot of doctors don't take Medicaid, and so you have this card that says you have access to coverage and care, but you don't get as much access as you do with private coverage. Let me ask you for a second then. You're saying you, you would take the private insurance route, but you have advised three Republican presidential candidates. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the, the back thinking of the Republicans to go to Medicaid, change, you know, it's no, it would no longer be a matched system like you're talking about federal state. It would be a capped amount of money. States would have to make the tough decisions you're talking about. Do you cut schools? Do you cut, have waiting lists for Medicaid? What would you do? Talk about politically why did they go this route to make such drastic change and take, to Andy's point, so much money out of the Medicaid program. Well, to be clear, the, the three candidates that, that I advise, they were interested in the, what okay. I just described. Okay, but I, maybe so, just, just more so broadly. What, what Republicans in general are thinking about with per capita cap, what's the idea there? So this actually, this idea originated with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton first proposed per capita caps in 1995 as a way to make the Medicaid program more fiscally sustainable over the long term. And the idea was, um, Instead of what we do now, which is we give states a, a certain amount of dollars based on a formula that actually is biased towards wealthy states over poor states, and then that formula, uh, states can use that money to administer the Medicaid program with all sorts of conditions and regulations and strictures that the federal government applies to the Medicaid program. So the idea is, actually, we should have the dollars follow the enrollee. So if you have this many poor people in your state, you should get this amount of money per enrollee to cover their costs and then have a little more flexibility at the state level to say, hey, our population in Texas is younger than average, in terms, particularly in terms of the Medicaid program. Maybe we need to have investment in the kinds of coverage and care that younger enrollees need versus older enrollees, for example. There are lots of things at the state level that are just different. And so giving states more flexibility to manage their programs efficiently uh, ends up with a better result. And, and, and by the way, fiscally speaking, what the per capita cap reform in this bill and the, and the previous versions of it this year in terms of the effect on spending cuts is very, very small. Um, it basically affects overall Medicare, uh, Medicaid spending by about 1% over a 10-year period. So it's not But the that, aggregate was about $800 billion. But no, 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 so so, that, so that's, this is a very important point. So the vast majority of that $800 billion was driven by the replacement of the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare with tax credits to buy private insurance. The per capita cap piece was about 5 to 10% of that total amount. OK, I know you want to jump in. Go for it. Sure, why not? <laughs> I can see. Well, let's start with a couple, other, couple of basic <laughs> understandings. First of all, Medicaid is a highly efficient program. It is probably 40% uh, less on average than Medicare. And depending on the commercial insurance, you know, 20 to 30% uh, less expensive. It does a tremendous amount with that money. 
So, and if we have a concern about access, if we have a concern about not having enough physicians in the program, and by the way, I measure access by state, uh, it's just below where it is in Medicare. It's, so access, we've got targeted problems, we've got problems with specialists in certain areas in Medicaid. We don't have a global problem like Secretary Price uh, makes, makes that out. There's, there's just no facts to support that. But if we do think that we want increased access, cutting $4 trillion for Medicaid over the next 20 years is not going to lead to higher reimbursements. So it's not cutting $4 trillion out of Medicaid over the next 10 years. Okay. We'll wait, we'll wait for you, and you can okay. kind of make your point. Okay. But, but I'll tell you this. Over the 20-year period, and you can dispute all the facts you want, but 15% reduction in payments for, for people with disabilities, 29% reduction in, in payments for kids over the 20-year over the period, and that's the result of per capita caps. It's comparison to current law. And so we have to compare things to, to current law and understand that we're saying, okay, we've got to make tough decisions. Let's make them on the backs of whom? States and having to pass this along to families. And I'll tell you what that translates into. It translates very directly into personal care assistants who you can't send out five days a week anymore. You've got to send them out one day a week. And what happens to the people? They, people have to go and get institutionalized again. They can't, the home and community-based services programs fall apart. They are that fragile. So it's a, it's a, if, you want to, if you want to help the Medicaid program and not just make a fiscal statement about making it more uh, fiscally sound, which I agree is an important goal, you wouldn't just cut it at the federal level and say, we're going to inflict fiscal discipline on people. That's just not an effective way of managing the Medicaid program. So I don't, I don't want to drown this whole conversation in numbers as opposed right. to broader things, because I know that isn't always interesting. But just to give one example, According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which Andy used to run, uh, the projected growth of per-enrollee spending for the aged and disabled in the Medicaid program is actually pretty similar to inflation, conventional inflation, the price of milk, eggs, et cetera. In the bill, the bill, the, the, the Cassidy-Graham bill, the per capita cap is indexed to medical inflation plus 1%. So it's actually much higher than the projected spending on the aged and disabled through the Medicaid program in the next 10 years. So there will be no cuts to Medicaid spending on a per-enrollee basis uh, for that period. And again, states will, so Texas, you know, what's really important here is, so, so uh, Andy said that, well, you know, it's true, it's, and it's absolutely true that this issue of disparity between what Medicaid pays doctors and what private insurers and Medicare pays doctors varies state by state. So there are some states, particularly like, say, you know, North Dakota, where uh, what Medicaid pays doctors and what uh, private insurance and Medicare pays doctors are roughly comparable. Texas is not one of those states. In Texas, the Medicaid program pays about 35 cents for every dollar that a private insurer pays a doctor to care for a patient. And again, maybe Medicaid's paying the right pay price and, and private insurers are overpaying, but the end result of the disparity is that a lot of doctors don't take Medicaid. So yes, we could triple Medicaid spending in Texas in order to solve that problem. But Medicaid is already 30% of the Texas budget. So you want to make it 90% of the Texas budget? So, so let, me, let me just say this. Don't believe my numbers. Don't believe OVIC's numbers. Wait for the CBO. Wait for the CBO. Okay. This is a massive, right. massive, massive change. Now, in absence of the CBO, we have seven independent studies. And, and like I was talking to somebody this morning who was just off the phone with Senator Cassidy, who cannot you cannot refute all seven studies, including AEI, which is a, a right of center think tank, came out this morning with a similar analysis. And even AEI said there is no possible way to do this this quickly, and there's no possible way to analyze this and know all the things wrong with it. And they pointed out in their paper all the things that they saw wrong with it. So look, 
I, I, that part I agree with, by the way. Yeah, so the, the rush process is a huge problem. It's a real problem. It's a real problem. And thank you. And, 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 and look, state flexibility, there's this, there's this caricature painted that Democrats don't believe in state flexibility. I signed Mike Pence's Indiana waiver, his HSA waiver, and no one's going to accuse me of being aligned politically with Mike Pence. Yet I believed, and, and also the Arkansas waiver, which I think was a very innovative waiver, which did some of the things that Ovik was talking about, allows people to, to buy Medicaid products on the exchange. Sign that waiver too, because I believe that states should innovate. I do believe that. Democrats do believe that. However, when Minnesota applied for a waiver that they've just been begging for to do exactly what the Trump administration has told them they should do, it was pretty much almost exactly what Alaska did. They guided it exactly the way Alaska wanted it, Alaska being a state with a red legis legislature. By the way, Minnesota, for those of you who don't know, has a red legislature as well. Minnesota did not get what they wanted. They got some of what they wanted. So I believe that this rhetoric about state flexibility has to be examined. So that leads me to my next point. I wanted to talk about state flexibility, but just clean up the alphabet soup a little bit for those of you that don't know. The CBO is the Congressional Budget Office. Sorry, my That's bad. It's okay. It's Washington. <laughs> we just fly all the time with it. CBO is the Congressional Budget Office. That is the official scorekeeper for Congress. They do the analysis and the numbers and that kind of thing. And AEI is the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank in Washington. So let's go to this issue about flexibility. There are all sorts of ideas on how to reform Medicaid. You've mentioned some of them, but I want to go through a, a list that we hear a lot about to get your take. Impact on things like work requirements, giving states more flexibility in how they operate. Andy just touched on that briefly. Health savings accounts, these are tax preferred accounts where you can use for medical expenses. Greater cost sharing, even limits on how long you could be in the Medicaid program. Some states are talking about drug testing Medicaid beneficiaries. Will any of these make a difference? Are they a waste of time? Ovec, do you want to start? Well, you know, as somebody who supports universal coverage, to me it doesn't matter whether someone has a job or not. We should make sure that everybody in America has the economic security <laughs> health coverage. Um, there are, I, I would actually pick a different list than the one that you described okay. in terms what of what it? are some opportunities to, to expand okay. flexibility. So an exa one example would be that uh, a lot of times at the Medicaid, in the Medicaid program, there are people enrolled in Medicaid who aren't eligible. Maybe their income is actually above the threshold. And Medicaid's meant primarily for lower income people. Sometimes people say, hey, my income, I'm, I'm eligible, so I'm gonna sign up for Medicaid. And they're on the rolls and they're getting those dollars from the state and the federal government. But they're not actually eligible because their income's actually higher than what it's supposed to be to be enrolled in the program. Under uh, the law today, federal law today, states don't have the ability, the legal ability, to go back and call their ro roles of who's ineligible for the program very frequently to make sure the money's, the dollars are flowing to people who actually are the real uh, people of need in the program. So that's an example of something where you, the flexibility would be helpful at the state level to make sure that the dollars are flowing to the people who need it. Another example is that one of the, uh, one of the things that's required by the federal Medicaid statute that was passed in 1965 is, uh, is ambulance services. And the end result of that, of course, we want people to have ambulance services so they can get to the hospital, particularly if they don't have transportation of their own. But the end result is, particularly now in the 21st century, people can take Uber or uh, Ride Austin or you know, pick your ride-sharing service you prefer to get to a clinic. They don't need to take an ambulance to get to a clinic that's maybe four blocks from their house. But because of this federal requirement, there are basically rackets out there where people charge $10,000 to take people four blocks down the street to a clinic when it would cost a fraction of that 
uh, to use an Uber or ride-sharing service to do that, and Medicaid could fund that and save enormous amounts of money. So these are just, these are, I, there, there's hundreds of these kinds of examples where states could have this flexibility, but federal law prohibits it. And so there is a role for actually acts of Congress that expand the flexibility that states have to deliver the dollars to the people who need the help in ways that are attuned to the populations of the states. So, so let me tell you what these waivers actually look like in the real world. Governor Bevin from Kentucky, small government, leave people alone, hands off, people should have their weapons and all that. Okay, Governor Bevin, and I'm not meaning to make fun, submitted a waiver where the program would create a merit system that they would use to decide who would get access to things like dental care. And you would get points or lose points. So for example, if you went to something that he approved of, like a job training program, uh, you, would, you would get a point. If you went to the ER when it turned out it wasn't an actual emergency, you would lose a point. And over time, you did volunteer work in the community, you might gain a point. So, Mike Bevin wants to create a value system, his value system, that he implements through the Medicaid program. I imagine that the apparatus he would have to set up to measure your daily activity, maybe he'll get it from your iPhones or something, will be, will be, will be what gets him there. But you know, he believes that, that people who are, and, and I think there's a lot of governors who believe this, uh, that are using healthcare services but not working are taking advantage of the system. Or if they're using healthcare services um, but they have a drug problem, they shouldn't be getting access to drug treatment. I mean, I'm not sure I follow that one, but that, that's not, uh, so look, that, th those are the kind of waivers we're going to be seeing. Those are the kind of waivers that are gonna be coming from government. Now I'll tell you how we thought about things, because when, when waivers came in, as I said, with Indiana, we wanted to approve things without regard to whether or not we thought they were good ideas, but with regard to some standards, some consumer protections. So for us, guess what we did? Research, we did some research, we did some analysis, and what we learned was if you make less than 100% of the poverty level and you are asked to spend even a dollar, even a dollar on copayment for healthcare, you don't get healthcare in dramatic numbers. And why that is, is because these are a lot of kids, as we now know, who go without school lunch. And so they have that dollar, it's gonna go for school lunch. It's, it's, it's not gonna go to deal with what's something that might be an illness, but it'll probably go away or we hope will go away, I've got a lump in my breast, but who knows what it really is. That's not how our healthcare system should be run. We don't wanna be taking care of a bunch of women with stage four advanced breast cancer. We wanna be taking care and detecting people in the early stages. That's just smart. So, I, I mean, I, so there is, there is some, as I said earlier, some things where Democrats and Republicans should agree on, but there are some things where Democrats and Republicans have difference of opinion. This is an area Having people pay to get healthcare, having people have to demonstrate some value, some virtue, whether it's a job or something else, in order to get healthcare, these are not things that many Democrats are ever going to agree with. What about sending up, setting up a health savings account? I think that's part of the Healthy Indiana program. The states put some money into the account. You're the Medicaid beneficiary. That's your account. Does that incentivize you to spend that wisely? Maybe you add preventive care without a copay or deductible. For, well, either one. I mean, I just, these are the ideas so the, that are being so talked about. So the answer out. is, we'll find out. That's, what it's, that's why it's called the demonstration project. Okay. So we'll, we should study what happens in Indiana. We should measure it honestly. And we should measure how many people using this program took better care of themselves. And how many people using this program didn't because the, those incentives really uh, didn't interact with real life in a way that matters. And we don't know. 
I mean, we should be honest and say, we don't know. We've never run a, a program like this at this level, so why not try it? But before, uh, you know, the minute we approved that waiver, I got calls from all over the country, this is the answer. This is a brilliant idea. We ought to do this. And the, the, the answer is, I hope it is one of the answers. We wouldn't have approved it if we didn't think it had some promise and some merit. But the reality is, we don't know yet. This has been up and running for a couple of years. I have heard advocates on both sides point to data which, is, which alarms them about the program or which makes them feel uh, like the program's working. And guess what? Both are probably have some truth to it. And the way the real world works is we should study it, look at the results, take the things that worked, and guess what? Let them keep going. Take the things that didn't work, fix them. How long do you need to study this for four as years. an administrator? You think four it's four years. years. Yeah. Three. Four do you years, agree with that, Ovec? Do you think four years is a long enough period of time, or you can do it shorter? Or? Uh, it, it can be, but you know, I, I'm really glad that we're talking about the Indiana Medicaid program, because this is a great example of what I'm talking about. The Indiana Medicaid waiver, the original one, was actually filed by then-Governor Mitch Daniels, uh, the predecessor to Mike Pence. And that waiver was set to expire under the Obama administration. And then Mike Pence said, well, how do we keep this waiver going? And actually, CMS refused to keep the Mitch Daniels version of the Medicaid program with the HSAs going and said, well, we'll only allow you to continue that HSA program if you expand Medicaid and do these various other things that we want you to do. And so from, from Andy's perspective, oh yes, there's flexibility here relative to Obamacare. But relative to the Indiana Medicaid program that Mitch Daniels first put in and Seema Verma, who's now actually the administrator at CMS, uh, this program is far less flexible than that program. And anyone who's followed the Indiana Medicaid program closely will tell you that. And that's a shame uh, because I think there was a lot. So I'm not as confident that the, the current version of the program will, will be as successful as the older version because a lot of the key things that made that Mitch Daniels version of the Indiana Medicaid program work are not features of this uh, Healthy Indiana Plan 2.0. And again, you know, so you, so mentioned, that, you mentioned the that people that I worked perfect? for. That uh, waiver was perfect. Of course, it wasn't perfect, but it was better. So I mean, you know, you, Why you was asked it me. You asked me. Um, you asked me about Rick Perry. You know, you asked me about the people I'd worked for. And you can what, answer his other questions. Yeah, I, I'll get okay. to that. But okay. let me make the point I'm actually trying to make first. Gotcha. All right. Um, so, you know, you asked. You know, when I worked for Rick Perry, you know, one of the things he talked about a lot and was very passionate about. And you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people in this room who are not big fans of Rick Perry. But Rick Perry used to say, <laughs> "That's an understatement." The president of the uh, fan club is actually yeah, here. Uh, you know, the, the one thing that he was very, very passionate. About, I said, "Look." We could take 80% of the dollars that the federal government gives us today for our Medicaid and cover 50% more people because there are so many ways in which our hands are tied behind our backs in the way we can use these dollars. Now, you can say that Rick Perry doesn't know what he's talking about uh, and, that, uh, and that he's you know, a terrible guy. And, you know, look, you can, you, but this was, this, is, this, this, is, this was his view, and this is certainly a view of a lot of people who work in the state government here. Uh, and so, you know, maybe they're wrong. Maybe, maybe Washington should tell, should tell Texas what to do. Maybe you don't trust uh, the local politicians here to do a good job with that program. Well, he had a 25% uninsured rate. Well, you know, that's, that's not Rick Perry's fault. So Texas, there are certain things about Texas demographically that are big challenges for the state that make it more challenging. For example, the uninsured rate counts uh, undocumented immigrants, right? Undocumented immigrants are not eligible for Obamacare. So even if we did everything in Texas that you're supposed to do under Obamacare, uh, those undocumented so does immigrants Florida wouldn't California. be affected. So does Florida and uh, California. Absolutely. So those, you know, the, but, <laughs> but this is a particular problem in Texas because that's a big population. So, you know, but do you so, agree so, if they expanded Medicaid, they would have cut the uninsured rate down, right? Yes, but not in a, in a way, I think, I think not, first of all, not as much as some people say because the eligibility for the exchanges expands when you don't expand Medicaid. Uh, 
But yes, it would reduce the un uninsured rate, but for what quality, right? If you can't get access to physicians when you need it, it doesn't really matter. Better quality than being coverage. uninsured. How about that? Uh, well, you know, actually, there's, there's a lot of evidence that that's not the case. There's a lot of evidence that that's not the case. Evidence and might not you, be the word I would use. Oh, ab absolutely. There's a lot of evidence. In fact, Jonathan Gruber has published some of the important papers on this to show that when people actually pay cash for physician service, they have more access to primary care than they do under Medicaid because for all the, all the paperwork that physicians have to go through to process that claim to get the Medicaid to reimburse at 30 cents on the private, uh, private insurance dollar, if you just take 30 bucks from that patient to do an annual checkup, there's no paperwork. It's actually better for the doctor and they have more access. Uh, and there is an enormous amount of survey literature that shows this. So Medicaid, you know, look, Medicaid is a program that is desperate need of restructuring and reform. And to say, well, Medicaid's great and everything's fine, we should just throw more money at it, instead of actually really trying to address what are the needs of people, what are the needs, what are the needs of the system to make sure that people get access to coverage and care. I think this is an important and serious conversation that, that I think gets neglected when we just say Medicaid rah-rah. I think you made the point earlier, you might want to remake it. Access for uh, care on Medicaid is strong. There are pockets of problems with specialty care, but primary sure. care and so well, on. The numbers show there is strong access. I'm not saying that providers can, like name, the payment you name, rate. You name the state, I can show you. I mean, I did okay. this study. And we, and look, we focus on Medicaid access as an issue. I mean, we, look, with all due respect to everything tank on left and right, I've, I've been in the private sector for 20 years in healthcare, running companies, been inside CMS. These are just problems you solve tactically, surgically, by understanding <coughs> and getting, not, not, not with um, so, so this whole principle, I mean, go tell somebody that they're going to be better off uninsured than having Medicaid. You're not going to win that argument among people who are on Medicaid and who've been on Medicaid by nine out of ten, if not greater. So, but n neither of us want anyone to be uninsured in America. The question is how you cover them. And Medicaid is not the right way so to cover them. Let's go to that point because I want to talk about, we're going to have questions in just you, a few minutes. Do you have a view yeah. on the Indiana? Yeah, yeah. sorry. Do you Kim. want me to talk about that? All oh, right. Very so we'll quickly, get it. though, no, we're going to move on. It's okay. going to take 10 minutes. So I'm going to have well, to explain it. Well, you can do it quick. You can do it. No, no, no. So the original uh, Medicaid, uh, Medicaid program, the Healthy Indiana program, basically the way it worked, it was an optional expansion of Medicaid. Uh, and, and the way it worked was, uh, for this population that received the optional expansion of Medicaid, uh, you, there was a fixed budget for the program. So there was a set amount of money that the state allocated to fund the program. And, uh, and so you had to sign up for the program. As a condition for signing up for the program, uh, you got these HSAs. And the way they worked That's is the health, savings health savings accounts, where you would then have a certain amount of money to pay for your uh, out-of-pocket expenses, your co-pays, your deductibles, things like that, which in Medicaid are very small, but they still are real money for people who are low income. And basically the way it worked was you had to get an annual checkup every year uh, and pay a, basically a dollar of monthly premiums, so $12 a year in premiums. And if you did that, you got this, you were able to sign on to the program, you were able to get these deposits in your health savings account. Uh, but to do that, as I said, you had to pay this $12 a year premium and you had to have an annual checkup. That's it. Uh, but that's, that, those were the requirements to, to, get the, to th get the effect. And there was a 96% compliance rate and 96% popularity rate of this program among the enrollees. Those two requirements were eliminated from the Healthy Indiana Plan 2.0 program that Mike Pence uh, uh, got away for. Why? Because uh, under Obamacare, if somebody is under the income threshold of 138% of the federal poverty level, you're required to give them Medicaid regardless of any of these. You can't put those kinds of qualifications on the Medicaid program. They're either, if they're eligible if by, by their income, they have to sign up. So all that became optional. 
So all the things that, about all the incentives that were structured in the program to make sure people were doing preventive care, doing annual checkups, having some stake in their health, all those were stripped out of the program because Obamacare doesn't allow Indiana to have that flexibility anymore. Okay. Does that answer your question? So if it was 96% popular when people had to pay a dollar a month, yeah. do you think it was more or less popular when people had to pay zero? But you know, it's, it's, you know, that's not economics, Andy, and you know that. So having, giving people a stake in their health, giving people a reason to have that annual checkup, it's actually incredibly Look, beneficial. We can, we can one have of the a, biggest problems in, in, in Medicaid access, okay. if you talk to doctors, what they'll tell you is the number one thing with Medicaid, the reason they don't like the program is because it pays so little. The number two pro problem is that people actually will make an appointment and not come in for it because they're not paying anything for the appointment. So a lot of, there's a lot of last minute can cancellations which leaves okay. gaps in their, in their schedule. And so one of the reasons they don't take Medicaid patients, they're like, well, there's no economics for keeping or canceling an appointment. Let's, let's move over to, I want to talk about, and we're going to, just for housekeeping purposes, after the next question or so, we're going to go to your questions. There's microphones here and over there. So as we're talking about the next question, if you could please line up if you've got a question. I just want to go to this issue about the size of the program, right? We talked about that at the top. It's 74 million people in Medicaid. Uh, we have about 150 million people, I think, that get their insurance from their employer. That's either the, you know, the, the worker and their families. We have about 58 million or so people in the Medicare program. Um, and we have talked about that Medicaid reimbursements are a bit lower than Medicare or the private insurance industry. Here's my thought. You know, it's, it's, we, we talk about it covers two-thirds of nursing home care. It's half of all births. It's one of the largest expenditures, as we've both talked about, from state governments. Uh, we have 10,000 people a day aging into Medicare. Those people might need long-term care. That's a big expenditure for the Medicaid program. I guess here's my question. Is the program getting too big? Are there other ways to do this? Should, the people, should nursing home care not be in the Medicaid program? Uh, we have 10 mil million people in this country who are, they call them the duels. They qualify from the Medicaid program, the Medicare program. There's some thought about taking those out of Medicaid putting them maybe back in Medicare. Um, I just wonder if, if, as a thought, is the program getting too big? Is it getting too expensive for the federal and the state government? Is, um, if you think that way or are concerned about that, is some sort of cost limiting, whether it's a per capita cap or a block grant, inevitable because the program keeps growing? Andy, if you could start. So it's not that Medicaid is too expensive, it's that healthcare is too expensive. We, we as Americans have chosen to charge each other exorbitant sums of money for health care. We do it for a variety of reasons, but we charge each other $680 for a routine prescription. We charge each other $8,000 for overnight in a hospital or $1,000 for a broken arm in an ER. Health care is too expensive. Now, some of the reason we do that is because health care in some sense has become the country's jobs program, right? So it, it's very hard to disentangle but we charge each other a lot of money. So what do we do about that? Well, for most Americans, we, we say the government's going to help you. And we do it in different ways. If you're in the military or if you're a veteran, you get a certain kind of help through those programs, through TRICARE, through Veterans Care. If you're older American, you get Medicare. If you're lower income or if you're a kid or if you're a senior, if you have a disability, you get Medicaid. If you're employed, your employer gets a massive tax exclusion for providing benefits. If you're on the exchange, you now finally, up to 400% of poverty, get equal treatment. The only category of people in this country that don't get that tax benefit are people who are not getting coverage through their employer or any of those other sources and make above 400% of the poverty level. 
That's a problem. That is a problem that we have and we have to address, we have to deal with, and we have to figure out how to do that in a sensible, cost-effective way. But to look at, again, Medicaid's per capita costs are so low, they're the envy of everybody else. Now, there are, there, you could argue appropriately so that they may be artificially low because of reimbursement rates. So putting a cap on the program and saying we're going to spend less, look, if you spend 20% less, you're either going to cover 20% fewer people, 20% fewer services, you're going to pay doctors 20% less. There's no other choice. And unless you want to do that, unless we have a national debate where we say, you know what, what we did in 1965, and let me remind everybody what we did in 1965 with Medicare and Medicaid. 1965, one out of every three seniors in this country live below the poverty level. Now that number is one in 12, okay? So unless we want to have a national debate to say, you know what, eh, let's go make it back one in six. We'll go to one in seven or one in five or one in eight or whatever it is, because that's going to be the impact. And, and, and you know, until we start talking about real reforms, which, which we, I hope we talk about, but just taking money away and capping the program doesn't solve the fundamental problem of healthcare costs. Going to prescription drugs does. There's a senator, actually, who I know, who's put forward a very interesting bill on that topic, it's maybe nearby. There's, <laughs> there is a, there is a, there are a lot of ideas, and they're hard. They're hard, because these, this is money people are making today, and as soon as people are making that buck, they feel entitled to it. I can tell you, sitting at CMS, you know, every time someone would come into my office, they, they rarely came in if they had a quality issue with a patient. They often came in if they thought that there was a dollar they weren't getting that they thought they were entitled to. Okay. So, Ovik, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I totally agree that the fundamental problem in America is healthcare is, it is too expensive. And why is healthcare too expensive in America? The number one reason why healthcare is too expensive in America is because we spend trillions of dollars subsidizing it for upper income individuals. So, we talk about Medicare. You know, Warren Buffett, Mitt Romney, Rick Perry are all getting government subsidized. We're all paying taxes so that billionaires and millionaires in this country can get government subsidized health care that they don't need. We don't need to be giving that assistance. But the reason we do is because everyone over 65 is eligible for Medicare, whether they're wealthy or poor. Uh, and so if we took, 10 per, if we took the 10, top 10 percent of this country in wealth over 65 and said, no, you're going to have to pay for your own health insurance and your own health care. We're going to use that money to help lower income people. We could solve a lot of the problems we have in this country fiscally. Same with the exclusion from taxation of employer-based insurance. That's a massive, massive subsidy through the tax code for upper income people to get basically tax-free health insurance. That's a huge entitlement. that. Uh, unfortunately, both sides, the Cadillac tax and the ACA tries to do something about this, and that's, the, in my view, one of the best things about the ACA. But there's, but there's a lot more to do. And so this, this is, this is uh, you know, the, the, on the macro standpoint, why healthcare is so expensive and what's too big about healthcare in America, I'd say those are the things that I would target. In terms of specifically how to reform the Medicaid program because it has this unwieldy, complex structure, uh, I've borrowed, you know, I shamelessly stole an idea from a, a left-leaning think tank in Washington called the Urban Institute. A guy there named John Holohan proposed, so there's basically two big components of the Medicaid program if you think about it a certain way. One is basically health insurance for people who are low income, right? So, you, you know, how do you do that? And the other piece is long-term care. So long-term care is you're, you're old, maybe you, you, you have a bad knee, you can't climb up the stairs, you need some assistance with the everyday uh, activities of daily living. Um, that's a big part of the Medicaid program, as, as Mary was alluding to. You could actually divide up those two pieces into separate programs and, and have one entirely run by states and one entirely run by the federal government, or both run by the federal government. You, you can structure it a lot of different ways. 
The advantage of having the, the conventional insurance piece run by the federal government exclusively, meaning states wouldn't be involved in funding it or any of the other stuff that we've been talking about. The advantage of that is you can integrate it into the Obamacare exchanges. So right now what happens is, let's say uh, in September your, month, your, your, income, your monthly income is 90% of the federal poverty level, in, in Texas it might be 20% of the federal poverty level, you're on Medicaid, it's 70% of the federal poverty level, you're uninsured. If it's 101% of the federal poverty level, you're on the exchanges. And so in every state it's a, exactly, it's, a, it's a somewhat different formula, but the end result is people who are low income, their incomes are volatile. They go up and down every month and they're having to re-enroll and disenroll in different insurance programs with different primary care doctor, doctors and different hospital networks, and that leads to massive discontinuities of care and coverage. And so it would actually be a good thing for, to take that piece of Medicaid, integrate it into the exchanges, so that no matter what your income is, your income goes up, your income goes down, you're in the same insurance plan with the same doctors, the same hospitals, maybe the exact level of financial assistance is adjusted. But that would be a much more rational system than the system we have. All right, so we're now gonna to go to questions. I have a, a request. Please state your name, talk right into the microphone, be nice and loud so I don't have to repeat your question, and get right to the question uh, so we can move through. We have a nice long lines of both. Go ahead, ma'am. You can start right here. Uh, hi, my name is Gloria Rankin. Um, can you tell me where you're from? Can you come a little, little closer to the mic? Um, Gloria Rankin from San Antonio. Okay. Um, a mother of three, um, two with disabilities, um, who currently are not receiving Medicaid services. Uh, due to my income, because I have a full-time job. And um, my question is, I know there's, we, you talked about different states, um, and the way it's going in the state of Texas, I make too much money for three children. However, I have a lot, we have a lot of medical expenses um, to cover. And so a parent's income right now in the state of Texas is considered up until my child turns 18 and will still continue to need services. So for me, I'm looking at the long-term effects of the cuts and the Medicaid cuts and things like that. So how, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not understanding how you feel that Medicaid is kind of not necessary or needs to go away. Because it's not all about low income or like you, the word you used earlier, poor, pe poor people. It's also people with disabilities who are not poor necessarily, but may end up that way or may end up with you know, not having as much because of you know, medical responsibilities that um, their child has or that they may end up with, and, you know, because we never know what happens. So can you explain S Simple answer bit? to your question. I want every American in this country, rich or poor, able-bodied or disabled, to have health insurance. That's the simple answer. The question is, how do you do that? Is it better to do that through Medicaid or a different program? And my view is that a program more like Obamacare's exchanges for the acute care piece, for people who are able-bodied, is a better approach. For the disabled, Medicaid is probably a better system, or at least it's a more established system that's accustomed to dealing with a d disabled population. So actually, in my, in my ideal world, the Medicaid program would actually be exclusively focused on disabled uh, individuals and other very tough populations. And for, again, just people who are able-bodied and just low income or poor or unemployed, put them in the exchange or something similar so they can shop for coverage like everybody else. What do you think about that, Andy? This sort of segmentation of Medicaid, taking some beneficiaries, putting them into possibly the exchanges? Uh, you know, I'm not so, to me it's about the money, not the structure. So if you say we're gonna put people on the exchanges, 
And oh, by the way, we're going to cut the money we give for subsidies by a third. Uh-uh. If you say we're going to uh, give people more uh, choice and a, and, a, and a different structure, but we're going to have every bit of the subsidy there, you know, I, have less of a pro I don't have much of a problem with that. I do think, though, that Medicaid is specifically designed to help families who have people with disabilities in their families. Uh, and I think uh, in Texas it should be doing its job better. Okay, I'd like to go to this question. Um, my name is Jacob Holt. I'm from here in Austin, Can Texas. Can come in a little louder at the microphone? Sure. Um, being from here in Austin, I was, uh, I was interested in um, what Mr. Slavitt had to say about specifically the different waivers that you had looked at in your tenure at CMS. Wondered if you could comment on um, Texas's 1115 waiver. Any comments or predictions on what may happen with that going forward in terms of flexibility here? You know, I think it'd be appropriate out of just respect for the next administration to leave that to them. I've got my own sense of principles. They have their own. They won the election, and they're, they're going to approve based upon. And they've, and they've set out, I think, at least what they've said publicly, is that they're going to not uh, impart their own philosophy on states, and they're going to allow states to drive philosophically. No reason not to take them at their word on that. I wish that they had carried that in Minnesota, so maybe I got one piece of data which, which tells me not to be concerned, but then again, you're in Texas, so uh, maybe they'll treat it differently. Do you want to jump in on that? Or? Uh, you know, I, I do, you know, we talked about work requirements. I believe work requirements is one of the things that's in the Texas mm -hmm. 1115 waiver. I could be wrong. Just, okay, sorry. What's an 1115 waiver? Yes, An 1115 waiver, uh, it, it has to do with section 1115 of some Medicaid statute. Um, and basically the idea is that um, uh, <laughs> states can, uh, can apply to Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for a, uh, a waiver from some of the Medicaid laws requirements, but it's a, a fairly narrow band, you know, uh, from my point of view, and Andy might disagree about this. Um, and states will use this, that's how, for example, this Mitch Daniels Indiana program got started. It was an 1115 waiver. Actually, Romneycare also was the result of an 1115 waiver from the Medicaid program in Massachusetts. One of the things I believe Texas is trying to ask for in their current 1115 waiver that, that they're applying for is work requirements so that you have, to, you have to have some sort of, it's like the welfare program today, the cash welfare program. You have to uh, be working within a certain two-year time frame or something like that. That's illegal under the Medicaid statute, I, in, my, in my reading of it. If you, you know, the Medicaid program does not allow you to have that kind of a test in the Medicaid program. So CMS might, in the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in Washington may philosophically want to, under the Trump administration, give Texas that flexibility. But I don't know if they have the legal ability to do so because the, the Medicaid law doesn't allow it. Now, I could be wrong about that because I'm not a legal expert, but, but that's my reading of, of the law as it is. So, so I think there are things about the 1115 waiver in Texas that co probably could uh, get granted by, uh, by Washington, but there are plenty of things that probably won't. Okay. Go ahead. Good morning, everyone. My name is James. You need James. to come really close to that mic, so right on it, please, and say your name and where you're from. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. He can, he, he, he's can you hear okay. me now? Yes, I can okay. hear you now. You get a little assistance there. Keep going, please. My name is James Spenders. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. I'm going to ask my questions fast and quick. The first question is, I have a solution for Texas to eliminate, not eliminate, to close the state support living centers. We have 13 of them. And a lot of people with developmental disabilities and a lot of people with any disabilities who've been waiting for services in the home. We could close some of them down but our lawmakers, the last session, they have a great bill to close some down, do a study. Guess what? It 
did not pass. And, uh, and I have a, my second question is, do you know my number of the waiting list? You want to guess what is my number? Tell us, please. 14,647 person in the waiting list. I don't want to live in a state support living center or a group home because a long time ago, I live in the community from 25 years now in the community from three other states. I want people like myself live in the community and live to let the way live. Okay. So this but I want the people from the other party to really look at my number and to also peers like myself in the community want to live in home with families, people their support, not be placed or try to close some of the SLCs down. Thank you. So this gets to, I think, the, the point of having less money on institutional care, more money in the home and community-based care. Yeah. Would you want to oh, jump well, in you know, on that? I, I would say a couple things. One, <coughs> philosophically, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, and I think, I think Andy would as well. I think we all want more people to get <coughs> that kind of care at home rather than in uh, institutions. Uh, Medicaid allows some flexibility in this regard, and I'm sure Andy can talk about that, but there needs to be more, and that requires actual legal changes to the Medicaid program to allow us to have more flexibility to deliver that care uh, at home rather than institutions. Uh, and secondly, let me just say it's great to have so many San Antonio people here. I'm a San Antonio native myself. Or well, why, wouldn't con I mean, why wouldn't Congress agree to that? That sounds very simple. Well, I mean, look. It is Congress. <laughs> home and, home and community-based services programs and dollar file the patient programs are really important, vital programs. Uh, they take work. Uh, they actually save money over the long term. There's no question about it. But when money is pulled back, they have to shut them down and they have to extend waiting lists and they do all these sorts of things. And so, like Ovik, and I know Ovik somewhat, he, he agrees with you. But I will tell you that for the Republican Party, they will say those words, not Ovik. But others, but when it comes time to vote, they seem to be voting to take money away from these programs and somehow expect that there's going to be some magic incentive discipline that's going to make everything work better. And they don't understand this reality on the ground. And that's why so many governors, including Republican governors, found Grant Cassidy and some of the other bills to be so reprehensible. And I'm sorry to use a word that, that implies a, an ethical value judgment, but the closer you are to care delivery and the closer you are to where people live, the more it is reprehensible. Okay. I'd like to go to this next question. Hi there. Right My ahead. name is Julie Ross, and I'm from Dallas, Texas. And I want to push back and, and tell you that underfunding Medicaid actually costs states more. Um, I have a daughter with Down syndrome. She is one of the 133,000 people on the wait list in the state of Texas waiting 12 years or more for the HCBS waiver. And when Medicaid is underfunded as it is, it already favors institutionalized care over that waiver. So if I was not alive today and she needed care, she would be immediately institutionalized. And it costs $26,000 for every one person per month in a state school, as opposed to six people that could receive waivers and live in their home or community. The second way that this hurts states is that ECI has been cut. There are Medicaid providers that cannot give services to children with disabilities under three. My daughter would have died if I tried to feed her to transition from breastfeeding to, to whole food. She would have aspirated and died without a speech therapist showing me how to feed her. That is made possible with ECI. Without those services, children are dying. 
The third way is Medicaid reimbursement goes to special education. If my child does not receive Medicaid or Medicaid dollars for her school to get special ed, she's more likely to enter the, the criminal justice system. She's more likely to be unemployed. Okay. Do you, do you so those three ways are how Medicaid, underfunding Medicaid at the state, costs states more in the long term and outcomes and costs for those individuals who may enter the criminal justice system and in terms of long-term health. And it also violates their civil okay. rights. All right, listen, thank you very much. That's great, you know, it's a great inside look at numbers, the real world impact. I'd like to go to you, please. Hello. By the way, that was so well articulated. That was articulated well, thank you. <laughs> Hello, thank you for being here. My name is Tony Hernandez and I'm a student here at UT Austin. Um, I understand that you have differences of opinion, but in the meantime, there are people who are perpetually waiting for a solution, and there are, we agree that healthcare is expensive. Uh, I think everyone agrees, I hear that. And you also have uh, drug companies that inflate their prices uh, when people need care, for instance, uh, HIV victims who need you know, access to those medicines. So have you thought of addressing this issue um, through regulating or addressing uh, drug prices so people have better access to uh, cheaper, more affordable uh, medicine? Yeah, so at, at, uh, at, at the website of my think tank, freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org, uh, look up a, um, a document called the Competition Prescription. It's a whole white paper on high prescription drug prices and a lot of the different kinds of reforms we can institute that aren't, that aren't like gigantic crazy reforms, but very kind of incremental reforms that could make a big difference in lowering prescription drug costs. Uh, the simple answer to summarize it is more competition. Where there's competition in drugs, prices are actually pretty low. For the 80% of prescriptions in the United States that are for unbranded generic drugs, the drugs are actually really inexpensive. They're cheaper to, to manufacture and price than a bottle, of, a bottle of water here. But for those branded drugs, that remaining 20%, that's where the prices are way too high. And, and you could regulate prices. That's one way to do it. A lot of countries do that. But the way that we've been successful in this country is by promoting competition, uh, making sure that there aren't artificial monopolies. We had a situation uh, recently with EpiPen. A lot of people are familiar that EpiPen, you know, they were gouging people and raising the price by 600%. Well, why, why were they able to do that? Because they had basically created a regulatory monopoly where no one else was be able to develop a competing product that schools in particular could use. So more competition can bring prices down. That's a big part of at least with drug prices, how to achieve it. But with hospitals, there isn't competition. You know, hospitals, there's regional monopolies here in Texas and all over the country, and that's a harder problem to solve. So if you want to tackle high, high prices in healthcare, drug prices is a big part of it, but hospital prices is number one, and the consolidation of, of hospitals into gigantic systems that have regional monopolies is a huge problem we don't talk about enough. Let me get two, two, quick, two quick points, one on drug costs, and one is an example to try to refute something you said earlier, which may or may not be successful, but you'll be the judge of that. The, the first is, when I was running CMS, I learned, I had them do a study on drug price increases. The first thing I learned is we're not supposed to publish that information. And because I found it's, out. Because it's, uh, uh, well, because of whatever, I pub rather. we published it anyway. Okay. People weren't happy. There you go. Second, then what we learned is that the top, every year there are over 75 drugs that have price increases of over 100% to Medicare. And, and many of them are drugs that have competition. They're generics, they're brand drugs. They just, but they just do it willy-nilly because no one sees it. I was always envious of my friends over at the VA because the VA had, could buy drugs using all the 
the power, the market power of all the veterans. And I said, hey, wait a minute. Why can't I ride on that? But the formulary is smaller, right? They have mm -hmm. a more control. There's always trade-offs. There's always trade-offs. And, and, but but you know, for a set of drugs where we have known um, uh, reference drugs for reference pricing, I think it's doable. It's second point, and this is, my, this is my other point, about why you can't just put people in Medicaid on the exchange. So what happens, you, you brought up HIV. What happens on the exchange, and what happened on the exchange, was that the insurance companies decided not to offer HIV drugs, many of them, because guess what? They wanted the other guy to cover the people with HIV. And this, so the, the whole free market thing, particularly when you, when you get, start to get looser about essential benefits, no prescribed drugs, for people who actually need health care, it doesn't, it doesn't do the job. So Medicaid does the job for people. And Medicaid is the best purchaser of prescription drugs in the country, bar none. OK, so we've got a, we're going to try to get through all of our questions before we conclude. Next, please. Thank you. Um, so my question is about doctors. My name is Patrick Crowley. I'm a fourth year medical student in Fort Worth. So I care about that 30% reimbursement rate of Medicaid. I'll be taking care of Medicaid patients for the next 30 or 40 years. Thank you. Um, but uh, my, my question uh, and my involvement in TMA, I found out the hard way that doctors in Texas really don't like Medicaid expansion, per se. Um, but then later, I've also found out that they don't like a block grant, as in the Graham-Cassidy bill. They don't like a per capita cap. They don't like the Affordable Care Act. They don't like the, they don't like the AHCA. Um, so my question is twofold. Uh, and I guess the, the first one is, um, should we be bringing doctors to the table more? Um, is that something of value, or should we just make decisions regardless of what they say for the, our best financial interest. And the second one, if we are to bring doctors to the table, what's the best way to get to do that? So I, I went to medical school. I have fam family members who are physicians. I have know a lot of physicians. Uh, and and the, so the answer, the short answer is both. We obviously want to, you know, include physicians in the conversation about how best to care for their patients and understand what they're dealing with on the front lines. But there are probably few professional groups in America that are more entitled than physicians. Physicians, you, you come out of medical school, you're, you're, you, you think of yourself as this great humanitarian who's saving lives. You know, there's this enormous prestige in our society that we place on physicians. And if you do anything to say, hey, by the way, that thing that you just prescribed will cost that patient $10,000. Uh, did you think about that at all? We're not trying, there's no class in medical school. I'm sure you didn't take a class in, in your first two years at, at, at medical school about, about that. Like what, is thing, what do things cost relative to the actual good it's doing for a patient? We're not trained that way. We're trying to do what's best for the patient irrespective of cost. And there's a nobility in that, but it's created a, a culture of arrogance in the medical profession where we don't think about, and we're, we, don't, we, 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 we think it's beneath us to think about uh, the economic costs of certain types of, of, of treatment algorithms for patients. So that culture needs to change, and that really has to start at medical schools. And maybe here at the Dell Medical Center, they'll start to, start to introduce some of these, these innovative things to the curriculum so that, that physicians are actually more conscious of the economics of what they're doing. So first of all, thank you for your commitment, your future commitment to taking care of Medicaid patients. People don't do it for the money. That's not the most lucrative way you could choose to be a doctor. And I'm grateful for that. Because uh, in, in this sense, uh, Ovik made a point, and I think I agree with him, is you can, you, can, you can increase compensation to physicians all you want. There are certain doctors that will never in a million years want to see a Medicaid patient. That's just not who they are. So those who have that commitment are great. And I, have, I think I have 
great hope and promise for new doctors and people in medical school today. It's a different world. I think it's going to mean something different to be a doctor uh, going forward. I think it's going to mean uh, that you're more data-driven. I think it's going to mean that you're more uh, population-driven. I think it's going to mean intervening in ways to keep people healthy in ways that doctors may not have always defined themselves. And I hope you all define that in a way that's very exciting and promising. I, I would just say one more kind of broader point and just about how government works. You, you mentioned the Texas Medical Association. They, they are a huge critic, and they were a huge critic of, of ours and the things we did. And you know how I handled I met with them constantly. And I sent people down here to meet with them and to listen to them. And the one thing I learned is in healthcare, everybody's sort of right and everybody's sort of wrong. I mean, we're, we're right about our specific thing, but we're kind of always wrong about the big picture because we're only thinking about our little thing. But if you listen to critics and you engage in critics and you show them that they'll listen, you can actually get somewhere. So not just doctors, but everybody. Uh, in, in joining the government, get every point of view you can. Uh, I just thought it was so important. Okay. Thank you. Right Hi. Thank you all for being here. Um, my name is Jessica Addison with the Waco Chamber of Commerce. Um, United States spends twice as much on health care as most developed countries, and we have some of the lowest health care outcomes. Um, that spending is driving our national debt, and in just 30 years, our payments of interest on debt are projected to be the third largest category of government spending. That should frighten all of us to think that we're going to be spending as much on payment of interest on debt, could outpace education, you know, infrastructure, arts. Um, all the things that we know are important to, the, to this country, and we're going to be, do we want national debt to be a government program? So what are, you know, and, and, then, and then couple that, because of that, the Medicare trust fund is expected to run out of funding in just 12 years. So what are some, you all have touched on some of the, the real reforms that our legislators could get behind that, to help address this issue? whether it be focusing more on preventative care, what are the other things yeah. that we can go to our legislators and say, yeah. and this is a real question. reform yes. that we need to get behind? Okay. Great, great question. Let me just say thank you for the question because we don't talk about this problem with healthcare enough. Um, I'll give you a piece of trivia. In 10 we years, we're, yeah, we're yeah, going okay. to be spending more money on interest on the federal debt than our entire defense budget. That's how serious this problem is. What's the simple answer? So, if you, if you download Transcending Obamacare, our big white paper on health reform that proposes universal coverage, the solution is to stop subsidizing wealthy people. If we basically shave <laughs> off and phase out subsidies, health care subsidies, government both at the federal and state level, for upper income people who don't need the help, and we focus our efforts on a true robust safety net for the people who do need the help that we've heard from today, you could save enormous amounts of money and actually increase the number of people with health insurance. Okay, Andy, quickly on that one. Well, look, what you, you brought up a comparison between us and, and Western European and other, other countries that we spend more and get less. There's a very simple fact that accompanies that. I'll just leave it at this. In other countries, they spend, they spend uh, two-thirds of their health care budget on primary care and a third on care for people who get sick. And even more interesting, to me at least, they spend twice as much on social services relative to health care than we do. So, the healthcare system, there's very little they can, the healthcare system can actually do when people show up in the system already sick. We need to reverse our thinking, and that's, I'll leave it at that, just given okay. time. All right, our last questioner is right there. Take Hi, it. my name is Zoe Whitworth. I'm a Hatton Sumner Scholar and Public Health student at Shrine University. 
And my question is regarding, do you feel that there's enough research being put in and will be put in in the future for rural patients who are more frequently, they have higher rates of Medicaid enrollment than urban patients? For mm. rural versus urban medical yes. research. Mm. Andy, what do you think? I think there is a complete set of unique challenges in rural health care that have been there before and that are getting worse. Uh, we don't have enough time to talk about all of them. I created when I was at CMS a rural health council to begin to look at long-term economics, access issues, and others. The good news is there's at least 80 senators who care about rural issues, deep rural health care issues deeply, so they're always going to be on the label, but we have to start doing something about it. Uh, I agree with all that. I'd say one quick answer in terms of solutions to this challenge is telemedicine, something the Texas Medical Association has opposed. Make sure that people can actually you know, Skype or FaceTime to have a, a conversation with their doctor, which there are various legal uh, barriers to right now. So let's do a lot more to have, uh, increase access to, uh, to uh, physician care through technology, which has been around for decades now. Great. Well, this has been a terrific panel. You've been a wonderful audience. Please help me thank Andy Slavitt and Ovec Roy. They did a great job. Thank you.